So um, I admit that this is a crowd that I'm not all super familiar with because um, I am a physician and so I'm sort of more with the healthcare folks, but uh, my name is Connie Liu. I am a OBGYN. I work at Gallup Indian Medical Center. Um, I am super grateful for all of you being here. Um, I am here representing the Community Health Action Group, which is basically a local group of, um, of uh, community members who are organized around the premise that we believe that our community deserves excellent health care, and we believe that our community is active and engaged and that we are willing to fight for it. Um, so we are here today at this business forum because um, Angela Chavez, who um, is our gracious host, um, asked us to come because she wanted us to present to the business community and to um, engage, you know, see if we can engage with each other to find ways that we can work together to make our hospital system this, uh, the strongest that it can be. Um, and so I think that um, it might be helpful for us to describe a little bit about the history of the last 18 months and the reasons why the Community Health Action Group came into existence. Um, and then after that, we're going to hear from a few speakers. Um, so we'll hear from Dr. Val Wangler, who is um, here from, uh, who was a former employee of um, RMCH and who many of you know as a community leader, especially um, during COVID as uh, the chief medical officer there. Um, we will also hear from Dr. Tim Putnam, who is a um, former CEO of a large um, critical access hospital in a rural community in Indiana. Um, he is well regarded in the rural health business community, and, and we invited him here to provide some um, outside insight because um, many of the lessons that he learned over his career, um, I think, are probably applicable here. And I know that we have a few visitors from out of town. I do want to point out that... Um, that the RMCHC uh, Chief Finance Officer, um, Chantal Ventner, is here and um, is graciously here to, I think, hear, many of, hear from you and answer some of your questions as well. So um, I think I'll start just by sort of talking a little bit about the history over the last 18 months. So 18 months ago, as many of you know, um, the hospital was being run by a gentleman named um, David Canejo. So David Canejo was forced to resign by the Board of Trustees um, at that time because of um, some um, issues with financial management that had come to light and which um, came, to, um, get, came under investigation through, um, the, by the state auditor. So after, the, after Mr. Canejo um, separated from the hospital and after the Board of Trustees was reformed, um, the only person on the board was um, somebody named Steve McKernan who was a former CEO of UNM. Um, under his, uh, by his recommendation, another individual named Don Smithberg, who is an employee at Community, Health, uh, Community Hospital Corporation, which is a management company that is run out of Plano, Texas, um, came here to run our hospital as the interim CEO. After six months of being here, he, um, the Community Hospital Corporation was signed on for a three-year contract in May of 2021 um, to um, manage RMCH. So we have noted that in the 18 months since, um, since Community Hospital Corporation has been a part of RMCH, that there have been several, um, that there are several concerning trends that um, brought the community, community members that are comprised um, CHAG to organize. So the first thing that we noticed was that, um, that there was a distinct pattern of um, re retaliation and um, retaliation and issues with um, work 
and workplace issues that were causing many of the people who had been working for a long time at the hospital to resign. So to give you an idea, you know, rural hospitals see turnover all the time. But what we were seeing at the hospital is that over 18 months, that over 65% of our permanent nurses had resigned, many of them well known to you, Mary Ippel, Sarah Pickert, Susan Palachuk, who is here today. And none of these people left because they were seeking higher pay. All of them left because they were concerned about the work conditions that they experienced. We lost over 40% of our permanent physicians. So many of these people came here because they want to serve a community and they were bought houses, they were here to stay. So, we, so these were issues of concern. We noted that the financial state of the hospital was beginning to decline. In 2021 alone, we noted a $10 million loss. And we've noted that also uh, um, that people are leaving, are seeking care elsewhere. So the hospital is only vi financially viable if people go to seek care there. You can't get paid unless you provide services. At this point, over 40% of the people in this county are seeking care elsewhere as far as Albuquerque or even further than that. So we're here today because we want, uh, we are organizing because we believe that this is not something that um, we believe that our community deserves excellent health care and that we can achieve it and that we are a community that is far from apathy and we're willing to fight for it. And we're a community that has internal expertise, local leadership, and the ability to organize to um, save our hospital. Okay. So, oops, sorry. Um, that's my phone. Um, okay. So I, I think that, um, I think that, I'm going to keep my piece short because I do want to hand it over to our um, local experts and, and Dr. Putnam. Um, and I would, I would ask if, um, I'm hopefully, hopeful that, um, that Chantal Ventner would be willing to um, also um, say a few words as well as a representative from the hospital. Um, but I just want to, you know, just in, as a physician and working in a rural community, you know, I think that there are some stats that real, I thought really struck me when, you know, I, I've been, as I've been doing reading about how hospitals really impact the econ economic health of a community. So, for example, I um, know that, um, so, for example, we know that rural, rural hospitals are the largest employers in the community. We know that our hospital alone implies five to 600 people. But we know that that's not just the, that's not the only impact, economic impact that the hospital has. We know that there are also ripple effect jobs, people who have jobs because the hospital exists, but who don't actually work at the hospital. We know that hospitals bring revenue to local communities. So, finance, so hospitals are often tax exempt. So in the United States alone, um, you know, the, um, $9 billion of um, tax revenue is foregone by communities because hospitals don't pay taxes. But that comes back to them 11-fold. $95 billion comes back to communities um, based on the financial benefit that these tax-exempt hospitals receive. And it should be noted, too, that every primary care physician that comes into this community, and I will note that our com uh, this county is one of the, is one of the counties in New Mexico that has the greatest need for primary care physicians. Every primary care physician who comes to this community not only provides an opportunity for our loved ones to receive care, they also generate more than $1.4 million in wages, salaries, benefits, and 26 jobs for each primary care physician in the local community. So these are just the general stats, but I think what we really want to hear today is how this actually shows up in your daily life. How does, your business, how does it impact your business? Um, so I will turn it over to um, Dr. Wangler first to um, discuss a little bit about what, you know, her thoughts about what um, the hospital means to the community and 
what she thinks rural health care here can look like. And then we will, um, and then um, we'll move on to uh, Dr. Putnam. Um, so if you don't know Dr. Wangler, she's been here for 12 years. She um, worked down in Zuni for eight years as a primary uh, family medicine doctor. She um, not only uh, was responsible for instituting some health technology programs down there, but also um, was responsible for the building of a $1 million um, youth enrichment program down, um, down in the Zuni Pueblo, if you've ever been down there and seen it. Um, she came up here four years ago to be the chief medical officer. She founded the Family Medicine Residency Program, which is um, a pipeline that was intended to bring people into the community to serve, um, to serve as primary care physicians. And, um, and many of you may know her because she has been a tremendous leader in times of COVID to ensure that all of us are safe. And it's undoubted, um, it's, her work has undoubtedly saved lives. So anyway, I'm gonna hand it off. Thank you, Connie. Um, and wow, it's really great to see everybody and, and really get the you know, business leader perspective here today. I think that's really critical and something that, that we definitely don't hear enough. Um, first, I just want to say that the Community Health Action Group, the CHAG, that uh, Dr. Liu and uh, a group of really phenomenal, concerned community members have put together, the amount of time, effort, work, heart that they've put into making sure that your community has the healthcare that, that you deserve is, it's phenomenal. I've, I've never seen anything like it. Uh, the number of just volunteer hours, the, you know, texts at two in the morning, um, it's, it's really, really remarkable. They are working tirelessly to make sure that, that we all have access. Um, as Dr. Lou said, I really appreciate um, Angela and the invitation and the ability to use this, this great space tonight. Um, my three-year-old son's absolute favorite place on the planet at the skate park is right next door, so we spend a lot of time here. Um, and wanted to recognize, uh, you know, the, the representatives that have um, taken time out of their really busy schedules, Mayor Bonaguidi, uh, uh, Councilor Palachuk, Councilor Piano, thank you all so much for, for being here today, really appreciate you. Um, I think, you know, for, for those of you that don't know me, I think um, Connie did a great job. I've been, I moved to uh, McKinley County in 2010. Uh, certainly I've been here longer than anywhere else in my adult life and really consider this home. My, my kids, my three-year-old and my three-month-old were, were both born here uh, and we just really intend to, to be here forever. So um, it, one of the things that uh, I think I really appreciate the, business perspective uh, over the last ooh, three, three years, I think. Um, usually also in the middle of the night, I've been working on my, um, my business degree, my master's in healthcare administration uh, from Hopkins, and it's really given me a really great perspective of everything that, that you all go through uh, every day. And I think that that intersection between healthcare and business is so critical because if you don't have a viable financial model, if you're not bringing that revenue in the door, you can't provide the service that the doctors, the nurses, the frontline clinical staff want to be there uh, every day to provide. So um, it's, really, it's really important. And, and I'm also really grateful to be uh, speaking with Tim Putnam today, who again, just has a wealth of, of experience in, in these realms. Um, but I don't want to talk too long. I know that we really want to hear from you all today and really understand your perspectives and concerns. Um, so I think I just want to paint a little bit of a picture of you know, sort of my vision of what healthcare in Gallup and McKinley County could look like. Um, and really, we don't have to look far to have some examples of, of places that are 
not getting everything right, nobody's perfect, but, but doing a lot of things right. Um, just before I started at RMCH, I did some, uh, some locums work, some temporary work at, the, at Cibola Hospital in Grants. Um, and just, I, I took a look at their website today. You'll notice that they're not very often in the paper for, uh, you know, challenges or financial struggles or a lot of things that, that unfortunately we see here in Gallup. Um, and just in those four years since I worked there, they've brought in um, a really great cohort of OB-GYN providers. They're doing some great OB work. They've added orthopedic services. Even in the challenging times of the pandemic, they've been able to really expand, bring a lot of new providers to the community, uh, and really capitalize on, on some of the opportunities. Um, San Juan Regional, I think also, um, you know, has done a, a really phenomenal job. They increased their in inpatient capacity by huge amounts uh, during COVID, and they really uh, were able to, to um, step up and, and make that happen. Uh, and so did the frontline staff at RMCH, right? There were so many people that worked just tirelessly, just shift after shift. We would call nurses, we would call physicians and say, hey, I know you just got off, but we have six patients in the ER that need to be admitted. We need you to come in. And I really feel like we have such dedicated local people, such talented, amazing, uh, skilled folks here in Gallup. Uh, and we, we just, the, the biggest thing that we need to do is to learn how to capitalize on what we have here, on our local folks, train them, make sure that we're, we're supporting our own folks. And I think that we could do phenomenal things with, with the people that we have here. It's, you'd be hard pressed to find people like Mary Ipple, Sarah Pickard, all the, all the folks that unfortunately have, have left the hospital, Susan. You know, we've lost so many great people that really have given their heart and soul to, to the organization uh, and to the healthcare of our community over the years. Um, and I think that we have every opportunity to rebuild that, to get that, but it's not easy. It'd be a long, difficult process, but those people want to come back. They want to serve you. They want to serve this community. Um, this is where they want to be. Um, I think what, what Connie said about what we call out-migration, so the, the patients going other places for care, um, is really important to, to think about for a minute. So depending on the, um, the source, yeah, 40 to 50% of people from our community going to Albuquerque, going to Grants, going to Farmington to get the care that they need. Um, and you all are business people, so imagine you're running the dry cleaning company and half of Gallup is taking their dry cleaning to Albuquerque. That's a really tough business model to sustain, right? We have to be able to have the trust of our community to say, hey, if something happens to me, I know where I want to be. I want to be right here at my hospital in my community where I have, I know the physicians, I know the nurses, they've been there for decades. I, I trust them to take care of me and my family. And I think that, um, you know, unfortunately over the last several years, we've, we've lost a lot of that trust. Uh, and that again is not easy to rebuild, but it's totally, it's totally feasible, it's totally doable. There are excellent people here and we can have the quality of care here that you would not hesitate to come to if you needed medical care or your loved one needed medical care. It's 100% doable. Uh, when I was working, I worked you know, clinically uh, as, a, as a family physician. We, one of the things I love about family medicine is that you get to work across a lot of settings. Um, so for uh, some amount of time I was working what we call the hospital service, so admitting the patients that needed to be admitted into the hospital. Um, and for the first couple of years that, that I was here, whenever a patient was in the ER, again, we would just do everything we could. We would call a nurse in from home. We would call in one of our, our providers to come and help with the admission. We would do everything we could to, to keep that person locally. Um, 
by the end of my tenure, every day we were turning down admissions, we were turning down transfers. RMCH is a, is a bit of a catchment, right? So back when I worked at Zuni, we would send people to RMCH all the time because they needed ICU level care, they needed a little bit higher level of care than what we could do at Zuni. Um, and by the time I left, the other facilities had really stopped calling. They knew that we would say, oh, I'm sorry, we don't, we don't have staff, we can't take your admission. Um, and so those are just, those are really, those are opportunities that, that this community should be able to, we should be able to provide those services here locally. Um, you know, for some of us, going into, you know, my rheumatologist is in Albuquerque, right? So for some of us going into to Albuquerque for a visit, you know, I like go out to dinner, it's kind of fun, I make a day of it. And some of our patients don't have that opportunity. For some of our elders, it is really hard to get it all the way to Albuquerque for an appointment. Some of our folks are coming from outlying communities where they're already driving an hour just to get to Gallup. And then we say, hey, I'm sorry, we can't help you here. You're going to have to go to Albuquerque. You're going to have to go to Phoenix. You're going to have to go somewhere far away for your care, be hospitalized away from your family where they can't come and, and visit you and provide that support. Um, so it's really, you know, as much of it's, as it's an inconvenience for, for some of us, it's a real barrier to care uh, for those that, that have fewer resources. Um, as I said, I think that we, as much as we have problems, we have an incredible set of assets here in the community. The commitment, the dedication, I think COVID showed this in a lot of places, but absolutely it showed this in Gallup. Um, you know, people, I remember in the early days of COVID, we didn't know, right? We, we had no idea if whenever we went into a patient room that we knew had COVID, if we were gonna catch a deadly disease and not be able to go back home to our families. We just didn't know. And you know, fortunately, it's less scary now. We're vaccinated, we have, you know, we're able to better take care of ourselves. But in those early days, it, it was scary. And every single day, people showed up, they came to work, they, you know, Dr. Laber went to, <laughs> was running the, the hotel program and going out every day to, to take care of people that we knew had COVID and we didn't know how serious it could be or what we might be taking home to our loved ones. And nobody complained. Everybody said, all right, Dr. Wrangler, let me know what time you need me there. And they showed up day after day at risk to themselves and their family. And I think that that's, that just says so much to me. That's a lot of why you know, I, I feel like this community is home. This community is where I want to be. Because that sort of dedication and commitment, is, um, it's, it's really remarkable. Um, and, and the clinical talent. I mean, I think, again, particularly over the last several years, um, we brought in a, a cohort of physicians from, you know, some of the best training programs uh, nationally. We added urology services, orthopedic services. We had a fantastic OB-GYN group. We, we had, um, you know, the family medicine residency faculty I would put up against any group anywhere. They were a really, really phenomenal group. Um, and so it's, it's, it's heartbreaking to see uh, so many of those people, uh, as Dr. Lou mentioned, so many of those people moving on and, and looking for other jobs. And a lot of them want to stay. A lot of them are, are finding other things in the region because they, they feel as I do that this is where they want to be and, and that Gallup is home. Um, and I really believe that if we can rebuild that, that relationship and that trust and uh, treat our, our clinical workers, our nurses, our lab techs, our physicians, our housekeeping staff, everyone that, that comes together to make hospital care work, if we reach out to them, if we listen to them, if we work with them as a team, I think that, uh, you know, they, I think a lot of those people would be thrilled to come back. Uh, and I think that we would be able to recruit other excellent people uh, to join us here. There's something 
really special about Gallup. Uh, there's really a, it, it attracts people that have that mission-mindedness that want to be here because they want to serve. They feel like this community uh, really is, is something special. Uh, and so that's, you know, it's, that, it's, that was the really fun thing about being the chief medical officer is that in a lot of places you end up in long discussions about salaries and benefits and everybody I talked to, everybody we recruited was like, tell me about the community. How do I, what is it, what's the difference I can make? Um, I'm here because I want to serve this community. Uh, and so it was, it was a really fantastic, um, awesome opportunity, great role to have, and it was because people were so dedicated um, to you all and to this community. Um, so how do we get there? I do think that you know, the last 18 months has really shown us uh, what can happen whenever an outside entity comes in and without being part of the community, without listening to the folks that are here, without meeting the patients, without going to the community events, uh, comes into a, to a managerial position. And, you know, in a, in a, a way that is profit-driven, right? And so I think that what we need is local leadership. I think we need people that are here for the right reasons, that are mission-driven. Um, and you, you guys have probably heard me say this, like, patience over profit uh, phrase at, at some other talks. Um, but I really, to me, that really has to be at the forefront of healthcare. Again, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I absolutely understand that we have to, you have to bring in revenues, you have to attend, you have to bill correctly, you have to attend to the finances. If you don't have a sustainable hospital, you can't provide care to anybody. But those patients, the patient care, um, our, our frontline staff, who are, again are such a huge resource, those have to be top priority. That's what, that's what makes us that's, that's what's so special about healthcare, right? Otherwise, we should be in, we should be in you know, venture capitalism or banking or some other field. It's really that, that attention to the patient uh, that makes us special uh, and always has to come first. Um, you may also hear this term um, MSO or Management Services Organization um, kicked around. Uh, and I won't go into that in, in too much detail, but I just wanted to, to sort of introduce that concept, um, which is basically a, uh, a lot of rural hospitals will rely on an organization to sort of help, um, I'm going to use organize twice in the same sentence, to organize uh, management in a way that, um, you know, has a clear, um, Kai also really loves it when the trains go by. Um, manages, you know, the CEO, the finances, the human resources, all those pieces that, um, that can be hard for a hospital, which is, again, really focused on the patient in front of them, really focused on the day-to-day. -day. Um, so uh, having a management service organization take over some of that management responsibility can be, has been really helpful in a lot of rural communities. And I think where we got off track was thinking, oh, that has to be an outside entity. That has to be you know, a company from Texas or wherever that comes in and does that. Uh, and I think that, you know, what we've, what we've learned is that we have the local talent and that we have a level of commitment that really, um, you know, trumps a lot of what uh, an organization like that from outside could, could bring to the table. I think that, um, you know, keeping those revenues, keeping those profits, keeping that the, the financial side of that locally is critical too. Those are, again, um, you know, important jobs uh, for the community. Uh, and as long as we have people coming in from, you know, all over the country, flying in, working three days a week and flying back, uh, we're not going to be able to get the same, you know, sort of bang for our buck that we can from, from utilizing those local folks. Um, 
So again, I, I want to make sure that we have lots of time to hear from Tim. I want to make sure that we have lots of time to hear your concerns. Uh, but I just want to leave you with, uh, you know, excellent, accessible healthcare. Uh, it, it's not a pipe dream for Gallup. It's an absolute possibility. Uh, and it will take um, all of us working together. I think the hospital is in a really um, desperate financial situation right now. I think that, uh, you know, we're sort of at the the crunch time to be able to turn things around, um, but I think that we can and I think that we have to because our, our, our families, our employees, the people of this community need excellent health care and we can do that. Okay, thank you so much Dr. Wangler. Um, I, I do just want to, you know, I, I think that some of the issues that she um, brings up are, are really um, important in the context of the fact that we have such a strong community and we have such community commitment. Um, I think maybe just before we move um, on to Tim, I just want to, I want to just bring us up a little bit up to speed about what has been going on at the hospital. And I want to give at least just, just two illustrations of how, why um, the leadership under Community Hospital Corporation was so problematic and why this you know, why the um, members of CHAG have been working so hard to separate the hospital from this leadership. So the best example we probably has is, have is of labor and delivery. Labor and delivery is run by 12 nurses. And so a year ago, 11 of those 12 nurses were permanent employees. 11 of those nurses were people who lived here. There were four OBGYNs, well, three OBGYNs. Three OBGYNs who moved here, chose to live here, and actually still live here, even though they no longer work at um, RMCH. So 11 of 12 permanent nurses and three permanent OBGYNs. That's what we had a year ago. And now what do we, we have now is 11 of 12 nurses who were hired by uh, an outside company. These are locums nurses who aren't from here. They are not people who know the team intimately, who know what to do in the case of an emergency. These are not people who are, um, these are people who are paid who are paid three to four times as much as a permanent nurse, especially now that nurses are so scarce. And we don't have any OBGYNs. We have a family medicine trained, um, OB trained family medicine physician who is excellent, but she can't take care of our entire community. And we are, again, relying on locums providers, people who come from the outside, who come here to work for a week at a time, and then they go back to their homes, people who don't know our community. So this is, the, this is what happened under management with Community Hospital Corporation. And we know that it happened because of a toxic work environment that was directly related to administration. Chag administered a survey to um, current and former employees from December to January. We were able to get 33 responses and we asked everyone, you know, the former employees, why did you leave the hospital? The vast majority of these individuals said that they left because of issues with administration, because of toxic work environment, because of retaliation. But then we also asked them the question, do you still live here? Two-thirds of them still live here. And then we asked them the question, would you be willing to come back to work at RMCH? And the majority of them said, absolutely. If there were changes in leadership, we'd be willing to come back. We also want to point out that there were issues with transparency with this particular management company, Community Hospital Corporation. It's very clear that the, um, we have been asking repeatedly to get information about the hospital, to have conversations, and, none of, um, and it's very clear that this was not a company that was willing to engage with the community. And frankly, you know, the feeling 
seemed to be that we are a bunch of people who just didn't know anything about healthcare. But the fact is, we have a lot of expertise in our community, and we are, and I think we are making really smart recommendations. So, as many of you know, about a month ago, the um, we have been um, the community, the county commissioners um, have some leverage over the lease of the hospital. We really have to thank our city officials and other people in this room for really making noise and helping. Um, and um, talking with the county who then a month ago moved to um, initiate a termination of the lease on the hospital because that's what the leverage that they have over the hospital. And so about a month ago, they, they said that they were going to initiate termination of the lease, which be effective in 180 days, and that in order for this lease to be reinstated, they needed to meet five conditions. So one condition was a new CEO, somebody, um, an alternate from um, Don Smithberg, who was the CEO at the interim CEO at the time, and they wanted that person to start by May, uh, May 15th. The other conditions have to do with transparency and communication with the community. So transparency with staff, transparency with the community, transparency with the commissioners. So up to this point, what we have seen is that, um, so we have a new CEO, his name is Robert Whitaker, he comes from Kansas, and we know that he's moving here and he has started his job there. Um, and we know that we have talked to the county commissioners about specific ways that we can implement formal ways that the community can achieve transparency with the hospital. A, commu a community advisory board, um, a, 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 um, a mandate that the majority of people who represent us on the board of trustees need to be from the community. Um, and we, we haven't yet heard any of those things and um, we do need to share some additional information that will come up very soon about our, um, about our experiences with the new CEO that uh, went out in a press release today. But I think that before we do that, um, I think we should talk to um, Dr. Tim Putnam to um, just get his read on what a hospital who's in a dire situation like ours, what, what it can do to turn around. So I, w I will say that, you know, this is not, this is a question of some serious importance because our hospital at this moment, per our sources, has less than seven days of cash on hand. We have people who are in the emergency room and other, um, other departments who have reached out to us saying that because vendors are not being paid, even including local vendors, they, people are going out and they're buying their own toilet paper, they're buying their own pulse oximeters, they're buying band-aids, they're buying paper, they're buying office supplies. Our hospital is has a very narrow window of opportunity to turn around. So I wanted to, I don't want this to be a message of total um, panic. Um, I want to talk to Dr. Tim Putnam, who has been around for many years. So Dr. Putnam is, um, oh, Rose, if you could um, help switch this so that Dr. Putnam is, um, face shows up on the screen, <laughs> sorry. So Dr. Putnam um, is uh, from Batesville, Indiana. He served there for 10 years as the CEO of a rural hospital, um, rural ho critical access hospital, which is, has a five-star CMS rating, which has multiple services. He is an expert in multiple areas in um, hospital administration. He has a doctorate of hospital administration. He um, has, uh, he chairs the, Graduate Medical Education Board in Indiana, and he um, serves, uh, and he uh, has over 30 years of experience working in various um, roles in, um, in 
various institutions. And what I find really interesting about Tim is that he really has this unique um, connection to his community. While he was serving as the CEO and someone who was you know, front and center as the leader of the hospital, he would often, he got a, um, his license as a, an emergency medical technician, so would go out on ambulance rides and pick up patients um, periodically. So um, I think that Tim has um, a lot of wisdom to share and we um, thank him for his time here. Thank you, Dr. Lou. I, I hope, can everyone hear me? Yes. Uh, oh, fantastic. Okay, well, thank you for the opportunity to speak to you guys today. I, I really appreciate it. I really um, uh, applaud your efforts of working together as a community for the benefit of the health of people in the community and, and helping uh, the, the lead healthcare organization uh, remain viable. It, it's a difficult time for rural hospitals uh, across the nation. Uh, before the pandemic started, there was a rural hospital in this country that would close every three weeks. Uh, the pandemic changed a lot, uh, made some things better, some things worse, but our data that is limited. So I'll limit my, my comment to, to that time period. But I, I know it does happen. It is a scary situation. Um, and, and it's many times here that have did not get engaged. They did not know what's going on. One of the things that we, we see at Nationwide is that it takes everyone working together. Uh, many businesses are in the, in the room today, and I applaud you because uh, hopefully as businesses you understand uh, the hospital is, is not just a, a place to go when you're injured. It, it helps the economic viability of the community tremendously. Uh, the more people that are employed, like Dr. Lucy, that are locally, uh, the more people in your community, it helps raise all the economic viabilities. And hospitals without, or communities without a, a vibrant, uh, high quality, engaged uh, hospital uh, suffer economically because of that. New businesses don't want to move in. People don't want to come in and live in a community without good access to quality health care. Uh, so it's a big economic driver, and I think there's 500 jobs that are currently at the hospital. So that's a big piece of it. Also, it's important to recognize cost of care. Um, without a thriving local hospital, without hospitals that open that offer services like obstetrics and and uh, you know other viable services, people have to go long distances, many times more expensive from an insurance standpoint, but they definitely don't get the preventative care that they need. So many times it becomes very expensive when you go to uh, hospitals in Albuquerque or even farther away. So I, I'm here to answer any questions. I, I know it takes the community working with uh, the hospital. That's why transparency is a big part of We really have to know what's going on, what we can add. Um, in rural communities, we don't have the resources that urban do urban does. So a lot of times we lean on uh, local expertise we can gain from local business leaders, uh, work together. But but I guess that that's one big thing: the hospital should not work in isolation. Um, and that's one thing that you really want to strive for: the to be able to work together, a community and the hospital and the community leaders all link together to do what's best uh, to keep healthcare local. So. Dr. Lou, I'm glad to answer any questions um, or, or any uh, other points that you would like me to, uh, to make while I'm, while I'm on screen. Thank you. Um, 
I think for the moment, um, I think what we can do is um, hold on because I do want to ask, um, well, I guess I want to ask you um, with less than, let's say there's less than three days of cash on hand with so many people who are seeking their own supplies, do you think there's any hope for our community and what specifically do you think the community can do to rally behind our hospital and to save it? When, when it comes to that little available cash, that small amount of cash or, or limited available, it, it takes everyone, everyone working together. What do we have to do to make this viable? Uh, there's probably gonna be some ability, uh, some need to loan, to have funds that are loaned to the organization to remain viable. Um, cash on hand, that's a, that's a very low number and it depends on a lot of other factors uh, of, of exactly how viable it is, but it clearly states that it is a concerning situation and it really takes kind of all the community understanding what's going on, knowing exactly what the challenges are and what it takes to strengthen the organization. I mean, some of the things that you've shared about people that are local in the community that want to work for the hospital and are currently not are very concerning. Because again, when you bring people from out of the community, you lose that connection, but also the cost is very high. And if costs continue like that, it, it will not take long to work through three spare days of cash, especially given a lot of the payment models, a lot of the payment issues that are going on in the post-COVID world, where what we've had over the last couple of years has been the federal government funding hospitals to make sure they stay viable. And the tolerance for that additional funding is really running out. So the things we've received over the last two years to remain functional during the peaks in the first several months of COVID, you're not gonna see those large bills coming through Congress to give this bolus of cash to local uh, hospitals nearly as much. I, I really don't think we're gonna see much of that coming through. Great, thank you. Um, I think we want to open this up to the floor. I do want to um, just have a little bit of discussion and then um, I think we need to share some, um, the, share the contents of a press release that we're going to um, send out today. Um, so uh, I will pull it up because I think that this is relevant to all of us. So, um, so as you know, I think that we, there are some things that happen at the hospital to give us hope. We have, um, so Ms. Venter is a former nurse and um, in the military who um, now works in finance and is known as a turnaround specialist. We really have a lot of reason to hope because she's here and as you can see, she's engaged with the community. She's here today. These are things that give us hope. We have the county commissioners who are listening. That gives us hope. But I do think that it is important to point out that there are some, there are some barriers that stand between us and getting us uh, ourselves out of this hold and building towards the hospital that we know we need and deserve. And one of those things is that we were hoping that with the new CEO um, arriving, that this meant the end of the, um, the toxic culture that was driving away so many of our staff and driving away so many patients that came with Mr. Smithberg. One of the conditions that the Board of Trustees placed on um, the 
while, when Mr. Whitaker came is that Mr. Smithrick was no longer to be involved in any part of the operations of the hospital. We have several well-placed sources who have indicated to us that Mr. Smithrick is still, in, in fact, running the hospital through proxies, through Mr. Whitaker, and through... Um, and we, um, and we have um, submitted that evidence to, um, the, to the county commissioners. Um, I think it, we also, we have some specific examples of how that happened. So Rural Health Solutions is a consulting company that was hired in order to fix so many of the damaging issues that occurred between staff and executive leadership. And um, the, the contract was to be cost neutral because um, we actually obtained a grant in order to have them do their work on site. But this past Friday, uh, Mr. Whitaker, at the behest of Mr. Smithberg, actually fired Rural Health Solutions. And they are no longer going to be able to complete their contract. And in fact, the hospital will have to pay pay the um, pay in order to um, sever end that contract early. What is troubling about this too is that um, Rural Health Solutions was responsible for writing grants that are due on April 30th. That would have brought the hospital a million dollars in revenue. And because they are no longer working for the hospital, they will, um, that, you know, these, um, those grants will, that funding will not come to us. So it's puzzling decisions like this that, um, you know, th these are things that would have brought the hospital out of um, what we uh, out um, to, and had us helped us to move forward, but we do still have some obstacles before us, and that is primarily that we are really advocating for the true separation between our hospital and community hospital corporation. Um, I don't want to say that this is all bad, though. But I think that we do have leadership at the hospital who do have productive ideas and do have a path forward. I'm I don't want to. I'm putting her on the spot, but I, but Ms. Ventner actually did give a very productive um, plan that she put forward at the Board of Trustees meeting last Wednesday. She's um, undertaking these 100-day micro, uh, micro plans. She can just explain it better. But things that will, um, short targets that are intended to make great progress to bring us to, um, the revenue and bring us the um, cultural change that we need in order to bring patients back to the hospital to keep, um, to keep our staff at the hospital. Um, is it okay if I put you on the spot? And yeah, okay, all right. Okay, I, I was hoping that I was hoping that she would talk because I think it's important to know that we do have leadership at the hospital that cares and wants to work with us. So, um, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, thank you. So, oh, my mask is on. I'm going to take it off. Okay, perfect. So, uh, forgive me. I'm used to doing spreadsheets, not speeches. Um, so I'll do my best here, but I did thank you for the opportunity to speak a little bit about how much I've just really been coming to love this community since me and my husband relocated here in January. That's my husband over there. And uh, he's also involved in the community, and we just have really been enjoying this place. Um, so speaking on behalf of the hospital, I can confirm that the situation is dire. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Um, in fact, I am a turnaround CFO, and I'm often called into situations where a hospital's usually in a bankruptcy situation. But let me start tonight by making a statement that community involvement is gonna make all the difference here at Rehoboth. <laughs> Sorry, I used to do, <laughs> I used to be on a computer. Um, this hospital plays a central part, just like we've heard in the previous speeches that people have been talking about. It takes place because of the community, the economy, and the people that call this place home. In order for a community to be financially viable, it needs a thriving hospital because all the support staff pay taxes in the community, even though the not-for-profit hospital does not pay taxes. Um, the hospital also pays the GRT tax. 
and all of the staff that work there go to restaurants, they have their dry cleaning here, and they support the communities. Um, in fact, one of the things that's, that's really dire about this hospital, and that really brings me a lot of pause, is the fact that my email is full of local businessmen and local businesswomen, some of whom are here tonight, that have been asking me to pay their outstanding invoices, and I just don't have the money. Um, and these, these guys are suffering because they're small businesses and the hospital cannot afford to pay them. So I'll say this again, that community involvement will make all the difference here. My career has afforded me a lot of opportunities to work with and observe hospitals all throughout this country, both as a nurse as well as a financial executive. I've seen what bankruptcy looks like for hospital and the community, and I'm especially skilled in this area. In fact, I was on call this last weekend with someone who used to work with the Biden administration, and they said, I've never seen a hospital come back from bankruptcy. And I was like, I absolutely have. And in fact, one of my hospitals in California was in bankruptcy twice, and I pulled it out from a loss of 27 million a year and made it to a gain of 5 million a year in under two years. So I know it's possible. And so I'm going to tell you this, Rehoboth isn't bankrupt, and I could turn this place around. But I cannot turn this place around without the community support and the help and of everybody in this room. My goal is to improve relationships between the hospital and the community by providing strategies which will bring Rehoboth into sustainable prosperity. We cannot turn this hospital around if patients in the community don't return and have their appointments at the hospital. We can't turn the hospital around without the understanding and the support of our local vendors and local suppliers. So give me time and I'll make this right. I want to encourage the community to return to the hospital as patients and to have confidence we will meet your needs. There's a lot of work to be done, but all the financial plans in the world that I would write, and one that I'll talk about in a minute, will not mean anything without the continued community support, like I see here tonight. That said, I have a plan. You're correct, Connie. Uh, I brought up a 100-day financial improvement plan. I call it a, a FIP, typically. And the reason why I do break it down into 100 days is so that we don't get lost with everything that's going wrong and we have one focused goal of moving forward. And the focused goal for the, this next 100 days is to bring revenue into the hospital. My plan sounds simple, but there's a lot of moving parts. But it starts with just a really big win. It starts with the Rural Health Clinic. The Rural Health Clinic is a special designation provided by CMS that provides extra funds to, to communities that are impacted by being rural, by not having access to care. And so what we have here is once we roll out this Rural Health Clinic, this is a real number. We will increase clinic access by 450%. Not only will this financially save the hospital, it will cover the gap, but it will also provide a complete increase to patient care. The second part of my FIP is the hospitalist program. Right now, over 60% of our hospitalist providers are from out of state, and they're very expensive. They're what's called locums. By revamping and bringing in local doctors and revamping the hospitals program, we can save the hospital nearly $2 million a year. 
The third one is really near and dear to my heart. This is the documentation and training. This program will empower our employees, our nurses, and our physicians by providing them the education they have been craving and a healthy feedback loop to the hospital administrators, administrators like myself, allowing for continuous learning and allow for our employees' voices to be heard. Who has the most knowledge of how we can save money at the hospital? It's our frontline staff. Who has the most knowledge of how to increase quality outcomes for our patients? It's our frontline doctors, like Dr. Wangler over there. I want to support our doctors and our staff by giving them a voice and providing them with the educational resources, dashboards, and metrics they've been asking for for years. Running a hospital cannot be done on a spreadsheet. It runs on its people. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the next two are based on the 340B program. This is a special favorite of mine because I've used it to turn around hospitals and local clinics before. This is a program that's designed by the government to support small not-for-profit hospitals, particularly rural hospitals. This program was originally canceled by accident just with turnover due to COVID, but I've turned that program back on as of April. And this program will save the hospital a lot of money to provide prescription drugs to our Medicare and Medicaid population. The next piece is about expanding the 340B program. I would like to use it for our in-house mixed use, and I would also like to expand it by working with providers in the community who can come and bring their patients to have infusion services using the 340B program in our hospital. I used the same technique in one of my hospitals in California, and I was able to bring in two million a month to that hospital. Not only was I able to decrease the overall cost in services for our patients, but I was able to do it across the board because that profit, that this was so profitable for the hospital. And I want to do the same thing here. The last but not least is I want to increase efficiencies in our operating room in our emergency department. Our mothers and fathers and children must be able to have surgery and they need to get into the emergency room before they've been there for eight hours. I used to be an emergency room nurse, and I can tell you we have terrific emergency room doctors. A few tweaks, and we should be able to see more than double the patients and increase access and cut down wait times. I just need the time to build a plan with our physicians, build the reports and data so that they can start coming back and seek our care. And lastly, and this is near and dear to me. As far as the community in this town, I have been incredibly imp impressed. Um, I've been talking with several individuals in the community, and typically when I go in to do a turnaround, they just don't have the people or the resources, and the community doesn't care. People care here. It's what's making me fall in love with this community. Um, and when I also look at the people in this community, just the high caliber, and even the people in this audience, it's phenomenal. So truly, thank you, Dr. Liu. I know you spent endless hours uh, working for this community and for everyone in this room and for this hospital, and I know you're not alone. I also want to thank Dr. Wangler, 
as I explained earlier, I've worked in a lot of hospitals. Um, but this was my first time working for a physician of the year. And I think there's a lot we can do together. You have great insight for this hospital. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Chantal. Um, thank you, Chantal. I, I do want to point out that um, Chantal is an employee of CHC. Um, she, um, in fact, the entire C-suite, uh, so the CEO, the CFO, the chief nursing officer, as well as the, um, the human resources director are all direct hires of C um, CHC. As you can see, Chantel has prioritized our community over corporate need, but I can tell you that an administrator, former administrator, Dr. Wangler actually, has um, spoken up and told us about what happens at some of the management meetings with CHC, CHC leadership. Dr. Wangler recounted previously a story where she recalls that in a meeting that employees and administrators were told that they had to be pro-corporate and pro-company and not pro-community. We want employees like Chantel who prioritize the community over corporate interests. And with the CHC contract structured the way it is, where these important people who fill these positions are contracted to CHC and not to the hospital directly, is hugely problematic. So this is why we have a petition over there that asks the Board of Trustees to to divorce us from this man the management contract of CHC, to free us and free our leadership to serve us. Because it's very clear that currently, while Chantel serves us, it's very clear that many of her initiatives are being stymied by other CHC leadership. Rural Health, Solu Rural Health Solutions was something that she implemented, so for example. And she was the one, in, and many of the physicians that I know in town talked to how excited they were when, you know, when she came to them and said, I want to have monthly meetings with you to repair some of our relationships. Mr. Whitaker has completely stopped those, can stop, stop those, and Mr. Smithberg has told him to stop talking to the physicians. This is not the direction that's going to get us out of the hole. This is the direction that we want to go. So I, I just wanted to just bring that up. I want us to sign that petition, and I want to hear all of your ideas about, you know, I, I think Chantal talks about how, and Tim, too, talks about how it's going to take the whole community coming together and working together to bring people back to the hospital and make the, the hospital viable again. Um, I, maybe we should open the floor now and just hear what your questions are, um, hear what your ideas are. I'm really excited because I think we have such a vibrant community here and people here who care so much. So, um, I don't know, I, we can just, just open it up. <laughs> yes, Jalen Hinckley. Mm -hmm. Hi, um, I'm Jalen Hinckley. And um, up until two weeks ago, I was the coordinator for our amazing residency program. Uh, my family has owned a small business in Gallup since 1982. So I'm here as a representative for former RMCH. I'm here as a patient. I'm here as the daughter of a local business owner. And I have, I have seen things be done at that hospital, decisions that affect our entire community, um, and things that will affect our local business and economy. When you look at how many positions are up at the hospital, those people go home to their families. I'm sorry, I apologize. Thank you, Mama Ange. <laughs> okay. <laughs> She's always keeping me in line. 
Um, so these people that work at the hospital, they go home to their families. They go to local grocery stores. They go to the movie theaters. They go to uh, buy furniture. They go to um, various places in town, restaurants, and they go to spend that money. That money goes back to local economy. Over the last few years, we actually lost the refinery. So when you look at the local economy and how losing the refinery and the people that worked at the refinery and they lost their jobs, how that affected our local economy. Think about five to 600 employees losing their jobs also and how it will affect our local economy. Um, you know, I'm sure that you, after the refinery closed down, I seen a lot of people selling their very expensive trucks, their very expensive houses, because they could no longer afford those. And when it comes to our hospital, I take a lot of, uh, I have a very personal relationship with our hospital. I did before I was a staff member up there. I volunteered uh, over the last 10 years. I helped revamp the labor and delivery unit. I was able to get donations from everybody in town. Uh, Ramon donated, um, I think it was six uh, CDs and stereos um, for the moms that are going to be in labor so they can listen to their music. And John Cherney donated hours. Um, our community really pulled together to paint and refurbish this entire labor and delivery unit, and it was amazing. So when I look at our hospital, it isn't just this building that has this roof on it that we go to when we're sick. This is, this is our home. Our family members have been born there. Our family members have passed away there. Our family members have healed there. A lot of us have gone there for our worst days and our best days. And we are all part of the community. So the idea of our local hospital failing scares the hell out of me. Not only as a patient, not only as a former staff member, but as the daughter of a local business owner. What does that mean? We won't be able to hire new employees. Who's gonna wanna move to a town that does not have a good, stable, rural hospital? Who's going to want to go teach in a town that does not have a good, stable, rural hospital that they can take their kids to at 3 a.m. because you know that's when kids always wake up with fevers. We need to have that. So recently I left RMCH as an employee um, and I'm working for an amazing organization here in town. And I, I really feel like all of us as a community can still pull together. We can still pull together and we can try to show force and say this is not how we want this to end. This is not acceptable in our community. And we can fight for this and tell them exactly what we expect of them. Um, I know that even with everything that has gone up on up there, if one of my children woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning tomorrow with a fever, I would still take them to RMCHER. The nurses, the med techs, the doctors, I have been loved back to health time and time and time again up there. I trust them, I love them. I know everybody has a different personal feeling about this um, with different personal experiences and I honor your experiences. But my experience with my hospital, and I'm unfortunately a chronic patient, I've gone up there multiple times. They will take care of you. 
But I, you know, Chantel was right. We can't get the finances up if the finances aren't there. So even knowing what I know, I still trust my hospital. I just don't trust the hospital management company that is running it. So as a community member, former staff member, former coordinator, always a coordinator, um, this is my community and this is your community and we need to, we need to fight for it. So thank you. Thank you. I will say Jalen's um, Jalen's stance on this is not it's not uh, is universal. So when we interviewed all of those those 33 people who responded to our survey, we asked them what's the best thing about working at the hospital. Every single person, 100% of people said the people, my coworkers, and a very close second. And I don't know why the one person didn't select this answer was serving patients in my community. So we have an incredible we have incredible assets at the hospital. It's the people. Anyway, does anyone have any? Should I come up here? Yeah. <laughs> okay, just to follow up a little bit on what Jaylin said as far as the experience goes with the hospital. Firsthand, I had my first two daughters in Orlando, Florida, one at AMI Medical Private Hospital and one at Arnold Palmer Hospital for Medicine or for Children. And um, then I had my son who came along five years later, a little pisser. And I was here, and I had him here. And out of all three birthing experiences, this was number one. I mean, you're talking about I had some high-grade hospitals, but because I knew the doctor, I knew the nurses, it just made the experience that much more. And that's what we're trying to hold on to here. A lot of people will say, why don't we bring in UNM? Why don't we bring in Presbyterian? Because we want to hold on to our hospital as a community because of these personal experiences that we have. Every time one of my children got sick, I had great experiences there. I don't have a lot of faith in it now. I mean, my son just recently, I mean, he's a grown man now. He cut his finger open 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, where the hell am I going to take him? So I took him up to GMIC because I was like, I just heard horror stories of our hospital. And he got extraordinary care there. He wasn't Native American. I said, can you guys get him in? His hand is cut. He's bleeding all over the floor. And then, like, immediately got him in, stitched him up, took care of him. And that's what we expect. That's what we got previously from our hospital. So the big questions that I hear a lot as a business owner and among my constituents is, why, why don't we get UNM to come in here or Presbyterian? The reason is we have no control, and we'll have the same kind of situation probably. We want to take control of our hospital, and we need to find a way. And the reason this meeting is established is I want to know how it can be done. I, want, I mean, I hear all the statistics. We know the hospital's failing, but I want to know who's going to take over. Who's going to make this hospital happen? Who's going to step up? If, if this management company exits, are we going to bring back Dr. Wingler? Are we going to bring back Caleb? Are these people going to come back? Who's going to be in charge? Who's going to be responsible? So 
So I think that's an excellent question. I think that um, you do have some very smart people in this community who are working on the answer to that question. I think that, um, you know, without more specifics, we can ask you guys, what do you want from the hospital? What will make you trust the hospital again? I don't know. Just I'm going to throw that question out there for folks to mull over. Oh, sorry, Caleb. Question. Yeah, um, so I, my name is Caleb Lobber, and I'm one of the uh, docs that was uh, over at RMCH, but, um, and, and I was born and brought up in this area. I'm Navajo. I speak Navajo. I was the only Navajo-speaking physician, and uh, I also have my MBA in health management, and I posed a threat to uh, Don Smithberg, and he terminated me. So I was the only one that had a panel of Navajo-speaking patients, and uh, so it was a loss. I really felt bad when um, I was forced to leave. So my dedication is to this area. This is my home, you know, and I have my education. I have my MD. I have my MBA, you know. Um, I got teacher of the year, um, teaching at residency program. So my heart was into this. And uh, so it was kind of a sad thing. But, but the question that I have uh, for Chantel, and you are a, a breath of fresh air, let me tell you. And the things that you've been saying have been wonderful. But, but my question to you is that we, I have brought up these same issues, you know, the 340B program, rural health care, uh, you know, issues like that to, you know, the board and whatnot. And they went nowhere. What makes you think that they're going to listen to you in this situation? So. Oh. <laughs> That's such a good question. I don't know if I have an answer offhand, except that I've done this before, and I'll do it again. I've turned around hospitals in multiple different states. I have worked with the wealthiest doctor in America, Dr. Pat Soon Chung. I've worked with uh, smaller groups of local physicians and community hospitals. Uh, this is not beyond repair. Um, I think it's going to take a concerted effort because I can't do it on my own. I need the community support and I need the community voice to back this financial improvement plan and really make sure that we hold me, because I'm a CHC employee, and my employers <laughs> uh, responsible for following through with this plan. Um, I hope it's okay. I, I speak for some folks. Um, so you asked, Angela, you asked um, a question about who's going to run the hospital. So frankly, I will tell you that I think that within our community itself, we have the talents and we have the experience to run this hospital. I don't think we can do it completely by ourselves. We do need some outside help, but we need outside, carefully selected outside help that we know is here in the service of our hospital and our community. So one, so one proposal is that we have a number of physicians in the community who have the experience and who have the, um, who have the commitment and the stance that patients matter more than profits. And so it is a known model to put forward a management service organization where the physicians actually are the ones who take over the management of the hospital. The Harvard Business Review put out a study that demonstrated that the hospitals that are run by physicians actually outperform, or in many ways, outperform other types of hospitals in general. And that's because of two things. You know, first of all, you have leadership that you know that the community trusts. 
And second of all, people who go into medicine, generally speaking, and who serve in rural communities like this do it because they believe in service and they believe in serving a community. And so you know that these are people who are mission-oriented, who are going to be aligned with the needs of the community and the needs of the staff who are there also to serve the community. So, I, so this is something that we can work on. We have smart people in this community who are working on that right now. Yeah, anyway. Oh, yes. Hi, everybody. Uh, quick question. You mentioned there was like three to seven days of cash on hand. What would be normal for a hospital of our size? Yeah, this, is a, this is a Tim or Chantel question, I Sorry. think. Sorry, and then so yeah. two-parter, <laughs> yeah. and I'm confused. You are a CHC employee, but it sounds like there's already a confrontational relationship with the new CEO who's a CHC employee. How does that play out? Okay. <laughs> All right, uh, let me ask in theory. Is it, is it feasible for a community to hire you away from CHC? I don't want to put Chantel in a difficult position because she truly is here to sort of help represent. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> the cash question, yes. So if, 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 so if anyone didn't hear, six months is what's normal to be cash on hand at the hospital. And we have been asking Mr. McKernan, board members, well, how many days of cash on hand are available? And we have seen that number dwindling. It was, I think the last time I asked him, there at least 30 days cash on hand. Yes, please. Sorry, Rachel. Uh, you know, in theory, most people should have six months of savings in their account, and most people don't. So how many hospitals actually have that six-month cycle of cash? But, you know. My name is Amparo Esri, and I am the owner and qualifying broker of Cedar and Ivy Real Estate in Gallup. Now, I'm going to kind of piggyback off of what Jaylin was saying, and I'm sorry, Chantel, I'm going to kind of piggyback, because what you don't, what we don't know as a community is that every house sale generate $60,000 back into a community. Now, we have been hit. Uh, my family worked, still works. My husband still works for the refinery, but all of his coworkers do not anymore. And we did see a huge impact with people leaving our community to go to other communities to work in other refineries. And we did see people stay, but our community is impacted every time there's a turnaround with the hospital. Um, every single employee that leaves then leaves a house behind. And right now, of course, our market's hot, but every, every doctor, every nurse, every cafeteria worker that comes in and purchases a home 
brings $60,000 of revenue. That's also um, taxes, that's GRT, that's all of those things that are brought into our community. And so we really need to pay attention and it's really important that we as a community do not lose this hospital to something that's just contractual or people that are being brought in and we're paying three times that price. They're not buying homes, they're renting a room, they're renting somebody's investment home, they're paying somebody else's mortgage, and they're living just week to week here. It's really important. I have clients that are actually leaving the community as we speak because they're terrified that something will happen in their older age and they will not have the healthcare services that are necessary in order for them to actually live. So we have to pay attention to that. When you have mothers that have to travel two hours, three hours to get to a doctor's appointment, just in case there's an emergency, they're staying in Albuquerque for two or three weeks before they actually give birth because you don't know when you're gonna give birth sometimes or you're a high-risk patient. We need to pay attention to that stuff. That stuff impacts our community. And I'm really looking forward to hearing that you work for us. <laughs> I'm going to piggyback on what she had to say just a little bit. As a uh, property owner that rents out properties. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm Bret Hartline. I am Caleb's spouse, so I've been affected. My number one fan. So I've been affected by his termination. We've been affected by the hospital's um, turmoil. We have rental properties that we had a two-year lease on. Two physicians, one working for GMIC, one working for RMCH. We lost both of them in our community and the profits they would have brought to your businesses because of the turmoil that took place at, at this hospital under the management of CHC. So if you don't think it affects you, just think of, think of the dollars they could have brought into your businesses. Think of the, the amount of money that you're going to lose because they're not here to spend it. It's, it's really going to affect everyone's bottom line. Thank you. Oh, sorry. Mr. Mayor. I'm in the center. If you wouldn't mind, I'll just stand here because I don't think I can get up there. Anyway, it's been kind of interesting listening to, to everybody, Dr. Wangler. I mean, my mind is going around. Hopefully I don't start rambling on here, but... Uh, uh, when she said we capitalize on our employees at the hospital, you know, that's, that is so true because, you know, I'm, I'm a lifelong resident of Gallup. I raised my kids here, uh, two boys and a girl, and I spent a lot of time in the emergency room. And it's, it's really nice. The only train tonight. <laughs> The emergency room, anyway, I spent a lot of time there, and it's, I'll tell you what, it's, it warms your heart when you go in there and you know the people. Last time I went to the emergency room, I didn't know anybody, and it was scary. It really was. You know, uh, we don't, you know, the hospital is uh, the peak of dedication. When you go to the hospital, you, you, you have, you, well, I've always felt that the dedication was there. They took care of us. 
And at this point, I don't feel that dedication. In fact, I've already had a conversation with my kids. If somebody gets sick, we're going to Albuquerque. And that's sad to say. You know, I mean, uh, it really is. But anyway, I, I, I Shantae, if <laughs> I get that name right, I appreciate what you're saying. I, you must have been a cheerleader in high school or something. <laughs> I, I mean, you got me excited. It really did. And I, 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 for one, I'm driving in last, yesterday driving in, I see a billboard that says R. And here, we're advertising. What are we advertising for? Expense. I, I have a billboard, you know. But one of the biggest assets that, that I have as a businessman is my employees. I mean, that's the biggest asset you have when you're in business is your employees. And when I see so many people, so many doctors that are, are turned away and believe, you know, I mean, it, it, it breaks my heart. It really does. You know, I, somebody mentioned, yeah, we're, we're losing all these people. Yes, we are losing people. And it scares me, you know. When I campaigned to run for mayor, I said I was going to try and bring in 15 businesses every year, you know. And I'll tell you, I've come to the conclusion that actually the mayor's position is to find money. You know, I mean, that's what we do. We, we've got potholes. We've got everything that we need to find money. And now we're at the same situation with the hospital. One of the things that happened, I don't know, 30 years ago, I'm, I'm good at bringing up things that are brought up 30 years ago, but, but the hospital brought in a, fund, a person to raise money. And if I don't know if any of you remember, Herb Mosier was brought in specifically to raise money, you know, and he was very successful, you know, so that might be an idea. Another thing that uh, when uh, Mr. Wigler was talking, I mean, reminded me again when I was campaigning, somebody asked me, what's the first four things you're going to do? And that's what I'd like to know what Mr. Whitaker is going to do, the first four things that he plans on doing. So I think you mean Mr. Putnam. <laughs> oh, okay. It's okay. Oh, no. Whitaker. Oh, you mean the CEO, new CEO. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, okay I got right. names wrong. Anyway, I don't want to further any ramble on any further. I mean, I appreciate uh, being invited tonight, and I, I, I've gotten a lot out of it. I know that Fran is here and Sarah is here. So just to let you know, the city council is really pushing behind you. Thank you. Yeah, we so appreciate it. Yes, love. My name is Pam Yardley, and I'm a former long-time, 34 years educator in the public school system. Um, I know mostly people I know because I know their kids. Rathika's here, Jennifer's here, Jalen's here. I know them because I know, know your kids. And the other people I know usually wear Speedos because I work at the swimming pool, so, and, <laughs> so you guys are totally overdressed. But, the public schools are funded by the number of students that are in our schools. And as people leave our communities and take their children with them, we are losing funding for the schools. It breaks my heart to listen to former colleagues talk about how they have to cover so-and-so's class so they have like 30 extra students in their classroom because they don't have teachers. They don't have subs to cover. Um, it just breaks my heart for them that they are having to deal with this. Um, I, I'm glad I'm not there anymore, but your children deserve better than this. We deserve better than this. And 
our school is going to lose people if, if they don't have doctors for their, for their children. So that's my viewpoint. Thank you. Okay, I just wanted to make a, few, a quick comment. I think what everybody said is, oh, I have to introduce myself? Oh, oh I'm Sarah Piano, I'm sorry. Um, I used to actually work at the hospital years ago. I don't know, some of you might have remembered I was in the PR department, and I remember it being a really like a family at that time. And um, this isn't to discredit what everybody said. I think what people have said is really accurate and true, and it affects our economy. But I guess, to me, what are the action steps? What can we do to help this group that's trying to take the action? Because I'm kind of an action person, and I feel like we are, we're stating all the facts. There's an issue with the hospital. We don't have cash on hand. We don't know if CHC group is going to get out. But what are we doing to change that? And I, I feel like that's what we need to come to a conclusion about. I know um, you said there's five steps that the county did. They did implement the first step of getting a new CEO. Um, but, you know, I'm curious about the board. I know we've talked previously, and you said we really want more local board members. To my knowledge, there's three local board members currently on the board now. Um, but I've also heard that the process of getting new local board members is difficult, and they're not often let onto the board. So are there steps that we can take to help your group get more local board members? Because that seems like the first yeah. initial step to me, right? Get local board members, because they're the ones that have the say. Because at the end of the day, what you're trying to accomplish is to get CHC out, right? Is that that's what the community group wants. Yeah. But what has to happen to make that happen? And I'm not trying to get Chantel fired or get her out, obviously. Um, but I, I mean, if that's the end goal, what are the action steps to make that happen? Because us just saying, us just stating the facts and saying yeah. it's hurting the economy, we're losing people, like that's all true, but that doesn't change the fact that at the end of the day, CHP is still in charge. So, and I don't know, I don't have all the answers, but you guys have been working on this for a while, and I know that with Rose Eason. I mean, are there steps we can take, Connie, to help get better management on the board as the first step? Um, that is an excellent question and brings me to the, perhaps the other points that are on our petition, which I think still are held true even as, we, as we've been um, circulating this petition for over a month. But... First thing is that we want local, so we do want local representation on the board. We want to form a community advisory board, which is a best practice at other institutions. And it's a way for the board of trustees and executive leadership to have a way to talk to the community. Those community members serve as ambassadors for the hospital back to the community. And when major infrastructure changes, like when the phone lines go down and you're not able to call to make an appointment for your sick child or to fill your important prescription, the community advisory board is there to understand how to troubleshoot that. So one of the concerns that we has been brought up, um, you know, when we've been discussing some of these ideas, is that you know it's pulling teeth to get people to participate in things like this. And so I just kind of want to show a hands here. How many of you would be willing to, or know somebody who would be willing to participate on something like a community advisory board? Yeah. I mean, I see like at least about like a third of the room, which is pretty good. And how many of you can think off the top of your head of one person who you think would be qualified to serve on the board of directors, the board of trustees, who you think is qualified and would do a, do a good job of representing the community? Oh. Uh, 
Well, the current qualifications are that anybody that needs to be somebody who has hospital experience. And so I think that that can be defined fairly generally speaking. Oh, <laughs> um, okay, all right. But, um, so for example, Jeremy Gay is a local, you know, a local community member and he is, hasn't, he, he's not a healthcare provider, but he served as a lawyer to the hospital. So he, you know, that he, he meets that qualification. But, you know, how many of you know somebody who you think would be qualified to serve on the board of trustees? And it's local, yeah. So I'm getting like, you know, I'm getting a lot of nods. So I think we have that, that and I think just making sure that we show, demonstrate that is the first thing. Um, I think that the second thing is that coming out to just show in force that we are here to support our hospital. So I told you already that, you know, for that there are staff members, people at the hospital who are trying to serve patients who have to buy their own toilet paper, buy their own baby wipes, who have bed barred and steeled from other hospitals in order to be able to provide basic patient care. So we're going to, we are organizing a, a drive in order to actually try to provide some of those supplies to the hospital on Wednesday. And just show, it's, so we're calling it a, um, a supply drive and a rally that will take place at the intersection of Boardman and College from 3.30 to 5 on Wednesday. If you want to come and just, you know, hold a sign with us and like, you know, just, I mean, it's supposed to be like a, to show these, um, the people who are working at the hospital that we support them. And if you want to bring donations of either food, um, basic office supplies, I know I keep bringing up toilet paper, but toilet paper, um, then that's something that you can bring to, um, bring to the parking lot at First Baptist. Um, and we'll, uh, we're circulating a flyer that, um, about that. And we'll try to get a little bit more organized because I know some people have reached out asking, can we donate money? And we'll try to get some of those details in order as well as a more extensive list of needs from the hospital. But I think you just, these are the things that we can do to show, um, show people that we care. And also, you know, just making sure that the county commission knows, too, that, like, our community is ready to help. Because, you know, when the, if the county commission, they have been incredibly, um, they have been working with us, and, and it's very clear that they, too, are concerned about the health care in this community. And so the more that they know that the community is behind them, supports them in making big decisions about the hospital, I think the better. There is a county commissioner meeting tomorrow at 9, uh, um, tomorrow at 9 a.m., and, um, the RMCH lease is on the agenda. It is very, it, we um, understand that the Board of Trustees is intending to approach the um, commission to ask them to reinstate the lease. It is very clear that none of the five conditions, despite the fact that we have a new CEO, we have a new CEO in name, but it is very clear that he is not the new CEO. That is clear that um, Mr. Smithberg is still very clearly in charge. So we don't actually have a new CEO and it's, we don't have any steps towards transparency or communication. We know that these things are going to take a long time to implement, but we haven't even seen the first steps. And in fact, as I said, like, you know, these monthly meetings with administration and the physician group have been actually canceled. So we've taken backward steps. So um, I, I think it's very, we, we just want to make it clear that all we, that none of these conditions have been met and that we have higher expectations for our hospital and that we stand behind our county commission as they try to navigate this very difficult um, decision. Yeah. Dr. Mezoff. I think this drive sounds great, but I don't want to go to the grocery store and buy food for the hospital. And I'm wondering if, uh, where would we write a check if we would like to donate money to buy basic supplies for the hospital right now, just in this immediate crisis? Yeah. I think we need to work out that detail. All right. 
Yeah, I mean, if, if other folks are better at fundraising, oh yeah, Western Foundation. If other folks are good at this sort of fundraising or have some experiences, you're, it would be really super appreciated because we're trying, but I, I know that I personally don't have this kind of experience. Um, so, um, yeah. <laughs> I hear someone saying, Sarah, we're calling your name. I know that you have a new job as a city council, you know, on the city council, but. <laughs> um, yes, Dr. Wangler. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that these are all incredibly important things uh, for all of us to be doing. I also think that we just can't emphasize enough how urgent and dire the situation is. I mean, that degree of shortage of cash on hand, uh, it's, a, it's a really incredibly pressing situation. And so I also understand, you know, getting new board members takes time. These things take time. Like, do are those enough to make a difference? And so I, I don't know if that's I'm putting words into your mouth, Sarah. But part of my part of what what I'm concerned about is you know how can we get enough momentum to turn things around on what's really a, an incredibly short timeline? Um, and I was really I was really um, uh, bothered, frustrated by the board meeting um, this last week. I don't know if anyone had a chance to, to tune in, um, but really at the behest of the, of the Community Health Action Group, which has done such an amazing job trying to drive some of this change, the board now has an open session for community participation and, and uh, for the community to understand a little bit better how things are at the hospital. Um, I was able to log on to the, to the um, Zoom portion of that, um, and you know, it was maybe 10 minutes at most uh, that it took them a while to get the technology up and running. Um, and, you know, Chantel did a great job uh, presenting thoughts around, uh, you know, her 180-day plan and how we, could, how we could make some of those improvements. Um, but there were no financials presented. There were no um, patient volumes. I understand patient volumes are down by close to half, uh, uh, you know, year over year. None of the actual substance of what's going on at the hospital other than, you know, again, some, some really important ideas about how to get out of this were presented at all. And I think that the current management doesn't understand this community. They don't understand that, I think that they underestimate what we bring to the table and that we are listening and that you can't just gloss over, pretend to have transparency and we're like, great, thanks for including us. Transparency is about actually telling people what's going on, hearing the community. Some community members spoke and the board said, thanks. There was no you know, back and forth, no, hey, we understand that's a really important problem. We're gonna put that uh, you know, on, on our agenda and make sure it gets fixed. And so until we have, and, and that's one of the conditions on, on the revocation of the lease is that, that transparency piece. Um, and I think that this last board meeting was worse than, uh, you know, there were the couple where they couldn't figure out how to, to run the Zoom. But for the ones that there's actually been a public component, um, I, it seemed to be the least information that we've ever gotten. And so that's really concerning to me that we have a new CEO, we have this county mandate that says, hey, if you don't do these things in 180 days, you're out of the building. Like, that's a really serious threat. And the hospital's like, okay, well, we'll just, you know, not really worry about those things. And I think that that really says something about the esteem that they hold us uh, in as a community. And I think yeah. we really have to say, hey, that's, that's not good enough. I think we have to be at the county meeting. I think we have to be at the board meetings. I think we just have to say over and over again, we're here, we're listening, we are intelligent, bright people that can think through these things, uh, and it's got to be better. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yeah, yeah. 
sorry. To, to follow up what Dr. Wangler said, a few of us went to that board meeting the other day, and we were so happy that Whitaker came over and introduced himself to us, and we're like, oh, this is great, because nobody's actually done that with us before. And then we're like, what a suck-up. That's, all, that's, all, that's the only word I can use to, to say it, that he just was blowing smoke and mirrors, just, you know, yes, it, it, was, it was all a, it was a lie. It was a total lie. Um, I know that it's getting sort of like late a little bit. Um, I do want to, um, I know it's really hard for um, us to sort of talk to Do Dr. Putnam um, but is, is, are there any questions from somebody who's been there, done that, now runs a five, well, was until very recently um, a, running a five-star CMS-rated hospital in a rural community that is where we want to be? Um, I don't know. Doc, Dr. Putnam, are you still there? Oh, there. <laughs> I don't know. I, um, I also want to sort of um, see if you had any, like, you know, I mean, after listening to the things that we have in our community, if you have any particular words of advice, because I, um, I do want to then just move on to an um, exercise that I think will help gather some information that we can present to decision makers. Um, but yeah, we want to hear, hear your, what your wisdom is. Do you hear us? Oh, do you? Oh, just, yeah. Do you have any wisdom for us? After oh, hearing us. Dr. Poot, you cutting in and out. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> Can you hear me? And, and do you want me to head in right here? So, um, I I'm trying to I'm trying to wrap up. I just wanted to ask you if you have any words of wisdom for us. As uh, you know, what what specific things have you experienced? Um, you know, from business leaders. Like, what are the thing? How are the ways that you work with business leaders? What are the concrete things that they can do to help our hospital? Well, I think, I think the one thing is to be engaged. I think there are serious questions that need to be answered. Um, I, I think good leadership can answer those. Um, I think it's important to stay engaged and understand what's going on. Healthcare is a, um, is a different kind of business. So a lot of things we think about and, and running organizations, um, healthcare has life and death impact. Uh, but I encourage all of you to get engaged. Uh, the other thing is the money that's involved here is quite a bit. There's a lot of things that go on. People are always concerned about the cost of healthcare and what it takes to run um, an organization of this size. People think of it as, you know, a small community hospital, but it is a multi-million dollar operation and very complex. That's why it really takes everyone to be involved with this. One thing I will tell you is the National Rural Health Association is having their annual conference in Albuquerque in a couple of weeks. So I know some great rural health leaders that'll be there uh, in your state. Uh, and, you know, if there's, there's anything some of them can do, and, you know, a lot of us that have been engaged in rural healthcare want to see community hospitals thrive. They want to see rural communities, uh, smaller communities thrive, and it's important to do that. So, um, if there's any way to take advantage of that or any other way I can help the community with that, I'm glad to. Um, but I, I, I'm here for you. I wish you the best of luck. But it, it is hard work and it is a long road back to get to where 
you're a four or five star community hospital. Uh, but you can get there, especially if you've got the passion and the ability to work together. Thank you. Any questions for, yeah? Thank you. I think we should probably, I, it's, so, it's very hard to find a graceful way to say goodbye on Zoom. So I thought maybe I can release you from this particular part of the meeting because you've um, been so generous. He's actually on vacation in the Poconos. And I know he... <laughs> yeah. So, but thank you. And um, we will be seeing you in a couple weeks when you come out for the conference. Oh, actually, Dr. Cruz has a question for you. Yeah, this is Dr. Yeah. Thanks, Tim. Um, I just wanted to know, maybe for everybody, but uh, if we have an advisory committee, what kind of uh, leverage would that have? How, what would they be able to do that um, would uh, influence the board or the administration? Okay, so the, the question's about an advisory committee, if I heard that correctly. Yeah, Generally, in, in community hospitals, the board really, the board of directors is really the advisory in that advisory committee. The only time it's different is when the, or generally when it's different, um, is when it's the community hospital is part of a larger system and the board is the board of the system. So you don't have that local voice. But for the most part, the board of directors in virtually every community hospital is that voice in the local community, is that this is what's going on. They're the conduit. Um, as a CEO, I always use the board to say, help me understand what's going on because our service area is always so large in areas that I don't understand or in demographics that I don't hang out with, you know, and, and this business group or this agricultural group or, or, or something of that nature. Advisory boards, when the actual board doesn't fill that role, um, I guess can be an adjunct to it. It's very rare to see that. It's, it's, you know, it's always good to have that input. I've seen it where sort of the foundations, many times a hospital will have a foundation and that foundation will serve an advisory capacity. It's very difficult to raise money for the hospital because you guys have done this. And all right, so help me understand that. And as an administrator, as a CEO, you're always kind of looking for that perspective and empathy from the community. So any kind of group that could do that. Officially, an advisory board can't, you know, make policy changes or can't make changes to the hospital bylaws or anything of that nature. Um, so that makes it tough. And it only it really depends on how much the hospital leadership or board is willing to listen to the advisory board. Yeah. Um, I will say that actually, um, in response to your question, that actually we, we have a, a local hospital that has had in recent history a patient advisory board and that's Jigalbanian Medical Center. So for several years, GIMC actually did have a relatively powerful and very um, patient advisory board and the objective was really to try to get representation from all the different chapter houses and so they actually were very involved in, you know, gathering information from the community for important questions like where are we going to site the new hospital. So we have actually people in this, um, and we and what we have been working towards is trying to make sure that not only does that we want the board and leadership 
not just to represent the community, but the diversity of our community. RMCH, over 70% of patients serve, um, served at RMCH are from the Navajo or Zuni communities. And so we want those people to have, uh, we want those patients to uh, have a voice. We want to make sure that when decisions get made about personnel that it doesn't include letting go the only Navajo speaking physician that's working at the hospital with Dr. Lauber. <laughs> In case anybody was curious about that. Thank you for your time. Okay, all right, thanks. Good luck.